0: Matthew Sunday school. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We finished chapter 1 last week, and we're going into chapter 2. And as we intro Philippians, I want to say, you know, I don't always cover all the prayer requests when we get into the pastoral prayer. I try to cover new ones or main ones. There's others which you can get to on our prayer list on the website. You know, we want to keep Mary Rotar in prayer. Elda Cather is coming along, but keep Elda in prayer as well. There was another one the other day for Ian, um, Jenny Queen's grandson, who has an abscess uh, following a wisdom teeth extraction about a month ago. And those are on our website. Please keep them all in prayer as well and, and, and more. You know, I, as we begin this, I, I was thinking as I was singing that last song, which I just love those worship songs, and I was thinking, and I, uh, I feel like the Holy Spirit was giving me more things to share, and... Then even as I walked up here, I thought, do we realize the devil does not want you to be receptive to hear God's word this morning, or any time for that matter? The devil does not want you to worship God this morning, or ever. The devil wants to get in the way of God's work. And the devil and his minions, and, 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 and even just sin nature itself, wants to prevent and you from hearing from God. I had a professor of evangelism and Bible backgrounds and Pentateuchy taught many classes at Cedarville and he was passionate about evangelism and the gospel and he talked about how you know he was giving the gospel one day to youth and at the very time he's giving sharing the gospel a car crashed right into the church. Now I don't believe in coincidence This past week, it was actually pretty cool. Um, There was some type of an electrical surge or something that happened at the beginning of our VBS. I think that was Wednesday morning. And Wendy is talking to the kids about how God loves them. At that very point, we hear some loud noises and the lights flicker at the church. And some people saw smoke outside. It was something across the street. And I don't know what was going on there, but we do know the kids heard the gospel. But I hope and pray that we are seeking the Lord. Saturday nights, Sunday morning, and all throughout the week. Because the devil wants to do everything he can to prevent you from worshiping the Lord and prevent you from hearing from the Lord on Sunday morning. To hear, this is the word of God, right? We agree with that, amen? It's the word of God. And Jesus, well, through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55, says, The word of God cannot return to him void. When God's word goes out, it does not return void. These last few weeks I've been teaching on Matthew chapter 4 in Sunday school, and in Matthew chapter 4 we see that Jesus responds three times to the devil with the word of God. We need the word of God. These are nutrients for your soul, and we need prayer, and we need to be connected to the vine. Jesus is the true vine. You can look up John 15. And so, that's a little exhortation as we begin. And I'm going to come back to the idea of nutrients for your soul in a couple moments, but What's the secret to a great life? People have pondered this question for millennia, since long before there was a self-help section at a bookstore, or twinkle-eyed preachers trading in shallow believe-in-yourself platitudes, or cabinets full of supplements and drugs to increase our energy or enhance our effectiveness. The Bible's answer to that question isn't long. It isn't convoluted. It isn't complex. As already indicated, we can sum it up in two words. Selfless humility. As we get into Philippians 2, we see that selfless humility. Not the kind we conjure through mantras or summon through meditation or instill through methods of behavior modification. This is a supernatural kind of selfless humility that has its source in our identification with An imitation of Christ. Identification with. An imitation of Christ. It results in love, fellowship, affection, compassion, unity, service, and joy. Of all the virtues Christ embodied, selfless humility seems to sum up, well, his overall character. Selfless humility. I was at a big church a few years ago. Because they were letting us borrow some stuff. It wasn't a mega church, but a lot bigger than ours. And the children's ministry leader was walking me through, giving me stuff to load in our van to bring back here. She got a phone call. She said, ah, the drama. And I said, oh, you have that here too? Oftentimes when we have big events at church like Vacation Bible School or family nights or other things, I have a secondary prayer request. Certainly I pray the kids hear the gospel. I pray God draws the kids. But I also pray that God gives us an attitude of thankfulness and joyfulness. Because anytime you're serving in church leadership, probably leadership altogether, you have immature drama, and it is immature. So I want to ask you right now as we begin, regardless of your age, have you ever thought about finishing well? Some of the Puritan writers going back to the 1600s, they wrote such great stuff. Talked about suffering well for Jesus, holy dying, holy dying, finishing well. Tim Keller would write about finishing well, and he, he really did finish well from what I've read, and he just died of pancreatic cancer a few months back. But if you thought about finishing well, that regardless of your age, you want to put a stake in the ground, that you want God to use you all your days, and you want selfless humility. Up until the end, Chuck Swindoll is something like 88 years old, still preaching, still pastoring the church. And he says he's not retiring, it's not, he doesn't really believe in that. I'm, I'm sure they do have a transition plan for when God does call him home. But finishing well, and finishing well with a selfless, humble attitude. That's what we see today, selfless humility. A flight attendant one day wanted to go on a trip, and she received a seat that was available in first class. At no cost to her, she was able to fly to Europe. An emergency occurred on the airplane that made it so that they were in need of another flight attendant. She raised her hand and let them know she was a flight attendant. And even though she was on vacation taking a trip to Europe, she would be glad to serve as the additional help that was needed. She was not serving to get to Europe. That had already been taken care of, right? She already had the free trip to Europe. Now she was serving just to help out, just to help out. It was part of the package of being a flight attendant for the airline that she had free airfare to Europe. But she had no problem serving on the airplane either because she was just so grateful for the benefit to be able to ride to Europe at no cost to her that service was a joy, not a complaint. She was so grateful of the benefit of being able to go to Europe for free that She was just grateful and glad and joyful, and she thought, yeah, I'll help out. I'll be a flight attendant for this trip. It is unfortunate today that many people are serving Christ in order to earn brownie points to make sure they are saved, rather than serving Christ out of the overwhelming joy of the free ride. We all have a free ride to heaven. We can serve Christ out of that overwhelming joy and gratitude and thankfulness for the free ride to heaven. God wants your service not as a validation for your salvation. He wants your service out of your joy for the assurance of salvation. Paul continues this theme of unity in Philippians 2, 1-4. And Paul urges the Philippians to be united. Thinking of others as more important than ourselves and serving one another. As we get to Philippians 2 1 through 4, Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 are some of my favorite life verses in the Bible. And they're so countercultural to the Greco Roman world of Paul's days, but also of our world today. United. Be united. Thinking of others first. So look at Philippians 2 1. This is the experience that leads to unity. In verse 1, it says so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we're just going to leave that at that for now and put in an ellipsis at the end. Uh, you know, so if we have encouragement in Christ, if we have comfort from his love, if we have participation. In the spirit, and I think that's the Holy Spirit. If we have affection and sympathy, and he's going to continue from that point, he's picking up from where he left off, though. Context is really important. He's picking up. He's continuing from the previous chapter. In the previous verses, Paul was writing about suffering for Christ. Paul was writing about how it's a privilege to be able to suffer for Christ. We talked about that last week. And now Paul writes about Continues that theme. In the same context of him talking about suffering for Christ, he's talking about, in the previous verses, unity. Unity. And now he says, so if, so if, and, and it's interesting because that so if could be translated Uh, since or because of, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, but it it would be more of since there is encouragement in Christ or because there is encouragement in Christ. Since or because there is encouragement of Christ. So instead of the if there is encouragement in Christ, it would be since or because of encouragement in Christ. Here's the thing. Jesus changes us. If you're filling in blanks in your bulletin, that's the first. Jesus changes us. Jesus changes the way we act toward one another. Jesus changes our responses. So that regardless of how someone talks to us, we can still respond with a love and grace and joyfulness and thankfulness and gratitude. And that's what Paul is getting into right now. So, again, if could be translated as since or because of it would be like this. Because of the encouragement in Christ. Censor because there is encouragement in Christ. Censor because there is comfort from love. Censor because there is participation in the Spirit. Censor because there is affection. Censor because there is sympathy. And he continues from there. Jesus changes us. In Christ, we can have encouragement. That's your next, that's your next blank. This means that we are emboldened. Encouraged means uh, an act of emboldening another in belief or course of action. An act of emboldening another in belief. That's encouragement. Encouragement is from the Greek word that means to come alongside and help, counsel, exhort. Jesus does that for us through the Holy Spirit. Are we leaning on Jesus through the Holy Spirit as Christians? Remember the context. Paul is in prison writing about suffering for Jesus. And he's exhorting them. They get to suffer for Jesus as well. And he tells them, you have encouragement from the Spirit. You're not alone as a Christian. We cannot live the Christian life on our own. We can if we stay complacent. want to stay complacent and if you want to stay as a baby christian all your days you can you can do that on your own but if you want to grow up in him grow in maturity accept the challenge that jesus wants to wants you to 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 do with your life you want to go in the deep waters of faith you want to be a witness to your friends and family and loved ones you want to share the gospel you want to 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 suffer well for Jesus. To to live well for Jesus. You want to finish well for Jesus. You can't do that on your own. We have to stay connected to Jesus. Jesus is the true vine. See that in John 15. And and you have to stay connected to him through your church family. Through prayer partners. Accountability partners. Through time in the word. We need our time in the word. I'm going to come back to that. We need fasting. We need spiritual disciplines. We need to be listening to the Bible, meditating on the Bible, ruminating in the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and guess what? We need to do that with our our community as well. We must spend time with the Lord. Lord. We must stay connected to the vine. So as Paul continues, he talks about comfort, right? We also have comfort in Christ. Comfort means to be consoled or encouraged. It it is translated as consolation in the NASB, and I like that. If there's any consolation, consolation. And John MacArthur shares the Greek word translated comfort or consolation portrays the Lord coming close in whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in a believer's ear. Do you ever think about that? So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any consolation from love, you ever think that's the idea of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, whispering words of consolation in your ear. Imagine you're going through a difficult meeting. Maybe it's with family, a difficult time, maybe in the hospital, maybe in a nursing home. And imagine Jesus through the Holy Spirit whispering words in your ear. You got this. You're not alone. I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen 19 through 20. He said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The Holy Spirit is right there as your helper, coming alongside, comforting you. And I love that image of him whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in a believer's ear. So we have participation in the Spirit, too. This is translated fellowship in Fellowship with the Spirit in the NASB, I like that. This means that as Christians, we all have a partnership because we have the same eternal life provided by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are partnered together, and we are bound together with the glue of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We have a partnership. We have a partnership. That's powerful. We are all connected. The Holy Spirit networks the church together. See Ephesians 4.25 about that later on. And then he references affection. Affection. Look at it. Look at verse 1 again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Affection. That, that, That word, it means bowels or intestines. It is like we say, I love you with my whole heart. I love you with my whole heart. God has given us all deep affection. Because of Jesus, we can love like that. Because of Jesus, we can love each other and him with our whole being, with our whole heart. In Christ, we have compassion, sympathy, and pity for one another. This compels us to be united, and that's where verse 2 picks up. Be of the same mind. Look at verse 2. So, I'm going to put them together though. So, if or since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. Then verse 2, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. And there's three blanks there for your bulletin if you're following along in the blanks. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord in one mind. So Paul has written about the conditionals. And now he picks up on that. Hopefully they have encouragement from Christ. And same thing with us. Hopefully they have comfort from his love. And same thing with us. Hopefully, fellowship in the spirit, affection and sympathy. Now, complete Paul's joy by being of the same mind. Paul goes through great detail to show what he means. What does it mean to be of the same mind? It means unity and self-sacrifice. We're going to continue with that. Have the same mind and the same love. Notice then he says to be in full accord and of one mind. Then as we says, united in spirit instead of full accord. United in spirit. So he repeats the idea of having the same mind. Being united. The church, we can be united. Paul says this will complete his joy. In other words, this will make him smile. This is not uniformity, but it is unity. And it makes him smile. And I think it makes God smile. When he sees a church going through difficult times, suffering, serving in ministry, being united. We're going to see verses 14 and 15. It's a daily prayer for me. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Then you can shine like light. In other words, when you grumble and complaining, you're not shining like light. This makes him smile. I'll never forget listening to the audiobook of uh, I put The Divine Conspiracy in your notes, but it's not. It it was actually um, Renovation of the Heart, one of my favorite Dallas Willard books, Renovation of the Heart, where he says, why are Christians so mean? And he says, because they always have to be right. You've heard me quote that one, and I'll quote it again, because it, it was very convicting. It's true, right? It's true. Well, I'm not saying it's true that Christians are mean, but I think a lot of people think we are. And maybe it's because only half of the supposed Christians are supposed Christians. But maybe it's because the other half, we're in our sanctification process, and we think we always have to be right. We don't always have to defend ourselves. We can let things go. There are doctrinal issues that are very, that are very, very, very important, and we have to divide over. But most of the time, we're dividing and arguing and getting upset over things that really don't matter. And we can let them go. We can let them go. The content of Paul's exhortation is that they be like-minded. The verb used here occurs ten times in Philippians. Okay? In this four-chapter letter Philippians, that verb for like-minded is used ten times. But in all of Paul's letters, it's only used 23 times. So most of the the occurrences of the verb for like-minded is in Philippians. Paul wants them to be united. Paul wants them to be like-minded and united. He wants that. This verb speaks to the intellect, a way of thinking. But it goes beyond that. It incorporates the will and emotions into a comprehensive outlook, which affects the attitude. This is the intellect, it's the will, it's the emotions, it's the attitude. And that goes to our next two verses for today. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Be of a self-sacrificial mind and actions. Self-sacrificial mind and actions. Do nothing. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look. Not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing, no thing. No things from selfish ambition. Or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So he has exhorted them to be united and have the same mind. He's exhorted them about their encouragement in Christ, the affection and the unity of the spirit. And now he gives real concrete actions and these will lead directly to verses five through eleven he gives these this exhortation and then he gives the example of jesus and i love that example we're going to get in that next week jesus set aside his heavenly home his heavenly abode came down in total humility lived a life totally completely holy for us and died even on the cross for our sins and rose again that's the ultimate example of humility And then later he's going to give an example of Timothy and Epaphroditus who also did that. Not to the extent of Jesus. No one has to the extent of Jesus, right? But Timothy and Epaphroditus who also were self-sacrificial. These verses flow directly together. So he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. We don't want our ambition to be selfish. Listen, ambition is okay. I remember listening to a Chuck Spindoll message when he said, do you ever pray to be successful? It's okay to pray for success. If God has called you to do something, we should want to be successful, right? If God has called us to do something, that's a good thing. Ambition is okay. Selfish ambition is not okay. We have to fight that all of our days. He says, do nothing from conceit. Conceit means empty pride and is only used here in the Greek. Empty pride is only used here in the Greek. No empty conceit is one word in the Greek. No empty conceit is one word in the Greek. And it really means to have a highly exaggerated view of oneself. We're not to have a highly exaggerated view of oneself. And this is hard to translate because Romans and Greeks put nothing on humility. It is possible that Paul coined this word. Roman, to, to be humble in today's world is even in the secular world looked upon as a good thing. Not in the first century world. Humility was not a good thing in the first century. So it's possible that Paul coined that word. And this idea of doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit is the opposite of Paul's opponents. In Philippians 1, 15 through 17, his opponents were sharing the gospel for selfish reasons. Instead of selfishness and conceit, we should have humility of mind. Humility of mind. Can we have humility in our thinking? It does begin with our thinking. It begins with our mindset. Notice that verse 3 is the mindset and verse 4 is the action. Verse 3 is the mindset. Verse 4 is the action. Count others more significant than yourselves. That's a mindset. It's a mindset. The NIV says consider others better than yourselves. I don't really like that. Because if somebody is the best mechanic, he should not let, he should not think uh, it's self-sacrificing to let me work on his car. I mean, it'd be foolish for any of you to let me work on your car. I would just tell you, don't let me work on your car. That is not a smart thing to do. If you're the best mechanic, you should, you can know you're the best mechanic in the shop, and you can do the work. Don't let somebody, uh, you know, who's not as good do that. No, this is about your mindset of, of how much you value. You can be the best mechanic. But you can still realize that doesn't make your value of a being better than someone else. You're not v- more valuable. We are all created in the image of God. And then verse 4. Look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. It begins with the mindset. Consider others more important. Consider others more valuable than yourselves. By the way, this applies so when we're in an argument with our spouse, not that that ever happens with you, uh, but it does with us. And you're in an argument with your spouse or, or a friend or a coworker, or children or grandchildren, we can have the mindset, how can I be self-sacrificing right now? How can I think of them as more important? I'm not better than my spouse. No, no, no. We need to have a humble mindset. Then we look out for their their interest first. So how can I look out for my wife's interest? Be wife, not wives. Uh, <laughs> wife's interest first. How can I look out for my children's interest first? How can I look out for those that I serve first? You know, though, look at it. It says here: look not only to your own interest, but also the interests of others. Look not only. We do have to look out for our own interests as well. This doesn't mean that we don't eat so that the family has more. We still need to eat. We still do need to take care of ourselves. You know, it's like when you go on the airplane. Diane was a flight attendant. She can probably tell more about this. You go on the airplane, they give that little speech. They say, uh, if there's an event and the air masks come down, and if you have a child, put the oxygen mask on yourself and then on your children. I was in an airplane once, and they said, unless you don't love your children, then you can put it on your face first. You know, you do have to take care of yourself. You do have to take care of your own needs. You definitely have to do that. But he says, look not only upon your interest, but also to the interests of others. Psychiatrist Dr. Carl Minninger was reportedly asked what he would do if he knew that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. What would he do if he knew he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown? His reply, I'd go out, find somebody in need, and help him. He's a psychiatrist. I have uh, for you, I was going to put it on the screen, but I don't have it on the screen. But it is in the handout if you get it of the sermon. Um, it's also on my blog later on. It'll be linked to the YouTube for the, for the service and my podcast the contrast between a helper and a servant. A helper helps others when it is convenient. A servant serves others even when it is inconvenient. A helper helps people that he or she likes. A servant serves even people that he or she dislikes. A helper helps when he or she enjoys the work. A servant serves even when he or she dislikes the work. A helper helps with a view to obtaining personal satisfaction. A servant serves even when he or she receives no personal satisfaction. A helper helps with an attitude of assisting another. A servant serves with an attitude of enabling another. I love that breakdown. Let's make some applications in review, and then I have a story. Jesus comes alongside and helps us through the Holy Spirit. Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to help us in this life? We stay tune, we stay in tune with the Holy Spirit. In tune. Remember those old radios, you gotta turn the dial and get it in tune? Or there's black and white tvs where you could turn the dial and you could even hit it at the side i'm younger than you but i remember those you could like get it you know so it's not fuzzy you know we stay in tune with the holy spirit through these spiritual disciplines and some of them are individual that we do in our own life and some of them are in community with the body of christ and without these spiritual disciplines we're not in tune without these spiritual disciplines we're not really connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine. We stay connected through time in the word. And once a week on Sunday just is not enough. And I have an illustration about this, which with, with some of you might identify with. So I started something three weeks ago. Um, it's called MyFitnessPal. It's an app, and you can track your calories, track your exercise. It can help you with keto and things like that. And so as I realized that, I realized, wow, I've been eating a lot of calories the last several years. I, I don't look at that. I just think, well, I run so I can eat. So, but it's not enough. So I've decided I want to lose the weight I lost when I when I started running. So I started trying to deprive myself of things that I like, you know, like chocolate chip cookies and pie and everything that's good in the world. I'm depriving myself of. I'm trying to at least. But at the same time, I'm trying to increase my running. And so third Friday, I got up, got out of the house at 5:40 in the morning went for a really long run. I wanted to do 13 plus miles. I didn't, didn't have enough time for that, but it was a long run. And then we finished VBS stuff, and I leave here, and I thought, I'm going to go run again, so I did that. And I also can then cut the grass, because it was a heat advisory, I thought it'd be cool to cut the grass, and um, just to prove that I could do it. And I was not eating many calories, and I'm here all night, Friday night, with all of you others, which I'm so grateful, helping, and I only ate like 1,200 calories on Friday. And yesterday, I was depleted, and I realized, which I already knew in my head, you're not supposed to do that. See, they say, like, carbs. Some of you can correct me on this later. I might get it partially wrong. Carbs give you energy. You need those calories. And when you don't have them, you're running on fumes, or you're jogging on fumes, or you're walking on fumes, or you're doing other things on fumes. You, you, you do need substance in your life. I mean, what if you only ate once a week? And still chose to live normal, you know, live a a, a physical life. It wouldn't work. You can't do that. It's the same thing with Christianity. You need to stay in tune with God. You need to stay in tune with Jesus. And to stay in tune with Jesus, you need time in the word. You need time with your church family. You need a small group. We're going to start small groups. But our Sunday school classes currently are like small groups. You need to be with the body of Christ. We, our Wednesday night Bible study begins again this Wednesday. You, you, you need these times of corporate worship. But in your own life, you really need the Word of God. And I read through the Bible, Old and New Testament, every single year. And God is still showing me new things. Every day, He's showing me something new. It is so exciting and, in, and, and really awesome how much God shows me from His Word. And I know many of you can do, give those so, same testimonies. A few on January uh, 1st, it was a holiday, so that means I was off, not really, I'm just kidding, but I did take off that day, I usually take off between Christmas and New Year's, and, and I was in here, and I went to Colonial Baptist, no, Colonial is my parents' group, sorry, Poland Village Baptist Church, And we went to Sunday school. It was a great Sunday school class. And and I go there and I said to the teacher, thank you. This is just a wonderful class. I really appreciate it. He said, I'm glad you came. There's a lot of retired pastors that don't even come to Sunday school. They don't care. I mean, how much do we care to have the food that the Lord wants to give us from his word? We need that. And we don't have that. It's like trying to run a half marathon with very little carbs or very little calories or very little food. Let's continue with these applications. Are we allowing the Lord to comfort and console us? Do we have the love, the affection that comes from our inner being, from our gut, as Philippians 2.1 mentions? Do we love with our whole heart? Are we loving uh, the body of Christ with our whole heart, all of our being? Can we be united? Can we disagree agreeably? Is our ambition selfish? Do we have ambitions that exalt others? You know, the American way is to make ourselves look better and others look worse. That's not the gospel way. The gospel way is to think in any situation, how can I encourage another person today? How can I make them feel good even if I don't? Can we do that? How is our mindset? Do we have humility of mind? Do we consider others more significant than ourselves? Do we look out for the interests of others? Do we allow, and this is, a, this is really hard, do we allow margin in our day so that we have time to help others? If we're a type A person that goes, 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 as I am, sometimes it's difficult to do that, but it's good. We've got to allow some space in our time and our schedule so we can help others. It was a cold, blustery January night in 1973. Senator John Stennis, the venerable hawkish Democrat from Mississippi, drove from Capitol Hill to his northwest Washington home. Although older, at 71 years old, he was still the powerful chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. At precisely 7.40 p.m., Stennis parked his car and started toward his house 50 feet away. Out of the darkness jumped two young robbers, little more than kids, really. One nervously waved a twenty-two caliber pistol as the other relieved the senator of his personal possessions. Now we're going to shoot you anyway, one told Stennis. He did, firing twice. This Democrat, hawkish member of Congress, was shot twice. For six and a half hours, surgeons at Walter Reed Medical Center labored feverishly to repair the damage and save his life. At 9.15, that same night, another politician was driving home from the Senate, a man on the opposite end of the political spectrum. A Republican dove who had clashed often and sharply with Stennis. So you have Stennis, the Democrat, who's called a hawk in surgery, being shot twice. And you have a Republican who clashed with him much and was called a dove. His name, the dove, the Republican, Senator Mark Hatfield. The tragedy was reported over Hatfield's car radio that wintry night. Disregarding the strong differences in their convictions and pulled by a deep admiration for elderly statesmen, plus a compassion for his plight, Hatfield later admitted, I had no skills to offer, but I knew there was something I must do. And that was to go to that hospital and be nearby where I could be helpful, if possible, to the family. So they differed in the Senate all the time, but he turned around his car and he goes to the hospital. There was untold confusion at the hospital as fellow senators, colleagues, and curious friends and reporters overwhelmed the hospital's telephone operators. Understaffed and disorganized, the hospital crew uh, tried their best, but they were unable to handle the calls and answer the questions. They couldn't keep up with the switchboard. Hatfield quickly scoped out the situation. He spotted an unattended switchboard. He sat down, and voluntarily went to work. Much later, after recovering, John Stennis related what he heard happen next. He told the girls, Hatfield, the Republican, told the girls, I know how to work one of these, the switchboard. Let me help you out. He continued taking calls until daylight. All night long, he sat down and took calls, and he didn't give them his name. He didn't say, I'm a, I'm a senator. He didn't do anything. He just jumped in, and he helped out until daylight. An exceedingly significant detail, as I just mentioned, is that he never gave anyone his name because someone would surely suspect some political connection, some ulterior motive. Hatfield finally stood up and around daylight, stretched out, stretched, put on his overcoat, and quietly introduced himself to the other operators. He said, my name is Hatfield. Happy to help out on behalf of a man I deeply respect. There are opponents in the Senate. One's a hawk, one's a dove. He said, I deeply respect. I'm happy to help out. The press couldn't handle that story when it leaked out. It boggled their minds. No way did it make sense for a Republican to give a Democrat the time of day. Not to mention several long hours of personal assistance in some anonymous, menile task. I mean, that kind of character went out with the horse and buggy and silent movies and saying ma'am and sir to teachers. Or did it? Politics and personal preferences and opinions on things like military involvement may vary among members of the body of Christ, but there is a bond deep within that binds us to one another. Even when we differ over politics and military stuff, there's a bond deep within us that binds us to one another. It is a glue of authentic love expressing itself in compassion, fairness, willingness to support, and when possible, coming to the aid of another, coming to the aid of one another personally, without strings attached, committed to the protection and dignity of human life, regardless of how somebody votes. This comes from Chuck Swindoll, by the way. And what does it take, Swindoll says? Bigness, being free of grudges, being free of pettiness, being free of vengeance, being free of prejudice, seeing another in need regardless of differences of opinion, and reaching out in solid Christian maturity just because you care. That's bigness. It's living above labels. It's seeing beyond hurts. It's caring unconditionally, helping unassumingly, and therefore it is rare. As rare as a hawk and a dove in the same nest on a cold winter's night. And a hawk and a dove in the Senate, caring about one another. And that's what Paul exhorts us to in this wonderful passage. Let's close in prayer. Dearly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to declare your word to your people here at Bethel Friends. It's a powerful passage which demanded a very, well, a longer message. But it's a message that I think is so very, very, very necessary to each and every one of us. That we can be self-sacrificing. That we can be humble. That we can look out for the needs of others. That we can consider others more important than ourselves. And we can do that because of the Holy Spirit within us. We can do that because of encouragement in Christ. Comfort from his love. Affection and mercy. Affection and sympathy. But we cannot do that on our own. Lord Jesus, help us this week to stay close and connected to the vine. To you, the true vine. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as they're up to